tragic, but true. With this title, I'm picking up on the difficult topic of the severity of God. God's judgment, which is the manifestation of his justice, which is an essential part of his character, and his responsibility as the moral governor and ultimate judge of the universe. And as together we take a brave look at this neglected topic, it'll help us grow in our own life of holiness, strengthen our commitment to walking with Jesus, and also proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of eternal life and freedom from condemnation in Jesus Christ. I want you to turn to Jude chapter 1. There is only one chapter, but the first chapter of Jude 5 to 7. Now you will recall in the series on Jude, we are talking about Jude's message to our hearts today, originally addressed to a, a group of Christian communities that were finding themselves infiltrated by unbelievers in order to take them away from faith and purity in Christ. Verse 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by going undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's not fair. Have you heard that recently? It's a recurring theme in our society. When increasingly people are focusing on the injustices that are present in society or individual people who have not played by the rules. That's not fair. Lance Armstrong, who was the seven-time winner of the Tour de France, has went down in history up until then as being one of the most successful cyclists in history until in 2012 it was found that he had been taking performance-enhancing drugs. That's not fair. Whether we talk about drug cheats in sport or partners cheating on one another, or even being short-changed in a shop. That's not fair. Has it happened to you? It's happened to me not so very long ago. I hand over a 20-pound note. I tell you, it was 20 pounds. And I got change as if it was 10 pounds. I looked at my change, did a bit of calculation. Very often, I leave my left-hand brain behind. But I knew it was wrong. So I said, excuse me, you've short-changed me. No, I haven't. Oh, yes, you have. You gave me 10 pounds, sir. I said, I gave you 20 pounds. I couldn't find any witnesses. 
And so I was shortchanged. That's, that's, that's not fair. So this uh, um, topic of, of fairness, this understanding of fairness, is everywhere. We all want justice when there's an injustice being done to us. We all know vindication. And we know that love would give vindication. Parents with kids know you, you, you can't be unfair. It's not loving. So, okay, uh, Femi, you have one sweet, but Judy, <laughs> you have two sweets. Oh, yo, 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 yo. Don't try that at home, folks. We know that part of being fair is being loving. And to be loving means you will be fair. Now, Jude writes to warn and to encourage us not to be influenced by the thoughts and ideas and social standards of society, not to let that come into the church and, and affect us. He also warns that there are times people who come right into the Christian community. They intrude. They're gate crashes. Now, we're all, uh, the churches are open to everybody. However, people who come in and claim to be something that they're not can often cause a serious problem. These unbelievers who'd entered the church began to teach a heretical doctrine. It was about the doctrine of grace. They said, look, uh, the grace of God is enough for you. Therefore, you don't have to try to be good and holy. It doesn't even help. Actually, if you really are spiritual, you'll keep on sinning and disregard anything that the word of God says you should and shouldn't do. Jude explains it like this. They have twisted the grace of God, perverted the grace of God into a message of unfettered permissiveness. No saying no to the flesh. And anything goes approach. Now, in many ways, this kind of approach to morality and to many, many things is commonplace outside in the wider community. Oh, yes, the non-Christian community has certain things which are no-goes, but when you, when you compare that with biblical morality, we certainly do not wish that kind of thinking to come into the church. And so Jude changes his plans. First, he wanted to write a letter of encouragement about our common salvation, and he said, I, I had to change my plan, and I've got to write to warn you. So when we talk about the topic of judgment, this tragic but true theme in the scripture, we must realize that it's done out of the pastoral loving concern of God for his people. So Jude goes to talk about the judgment of God and takes examples of how it happened in sacred history. And he does this as a warning to believers. Not that he's saying, you believers are going to come under the condemnation of God. He begins his letter by assuring us that we have mercy, peace, and love in Christ. He ends his letter with saying that God will keep us and is able to keep us and to preserve us so that we can go through the whole of our lives loving God 
and finally be welcomed into the everlasting kingdom. But he does say, look, don't do what these people are doing. Don't listen to them. Don't let their thinking infect your thinking. Sanitize your minds, not just your hands. Sanitize your minds. Keep focused on Jesus and make sure that you avoid the very sins that these people are committing, which brings them under the condemnation of God. And the subtext here is, look, if you really have the grace of God and you really love Jesus, you will want to have a conscience about your lifestyle out of gratitude for what God has done for you. And also you will take this warning as a salutary warning to say, look, I'm going to deal with the sin in my life. I'm not going to put myself under condemnation. I'm not going to get all stuck into introversion and, and, and looking at coming under the sense of guilt and condemnation again. No, I am justified, declared righteous by God. But what I want to do is to show my gratitude and to have a conscience say, I'm going to deal with the sin in my life. Now, we're going to see some stories of God's judgment, which are certainly tragic and terrible to those who experienced it. Mind you, nobody has to experience the judgment of God. You can repent and call upon God for mercy. God has given us a way out, and his name is Jesus, who died on the cross to take our judgment so that we can repent and walk with him. Now, these examples, they are timeless examples. They're truthful examples. And I, I suggest they speak to you about a side of God which is very, very close to his heart, which is just as much part of his character as anything else, the severity of God. We don't like to talk about it very often because it is so easily misunderstood and misrepresented and therefore rejected by many, many people. There are those who see that God is some kind of careless creator who has botched up the universe and failed at uh, keeping a universe in order. And actually, it's full of misery and suffering. And that's your fault, God, your incompetent creator. Others just turn God into a kind of moral monster who, according to such people like Stephen Fry, delights in torturing babies, but also is an egotistical, narcissistic dictator who says, worship me or die. In the words of the rapper Royce Cornell Davison, ugly God, ugly God. And when people say to you, I don't believe in a God like that, shake them by the hand and say, congratulations, neither do we. We don't believe in an ugly God. We believe in a, a beautiful God. And this has all to do with God's justice. Justice is an essential part of his character. He is a God of faithfulness and without injustice. And God's judgment is his justice made manifest to the point Proverbs 21, 15, when justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. So what this is saying is that, you know, God's justice is his way 
of dealing with what's gone wrong in the world and bringing recompense on those who thought they could get away with cheating you or harming you or doing wrong. And so we're going to look at this. Um, A little later on, I'm going to do a special study on this, online study, because there's so much I want to say about how important it is to recognize the justice and judgment of God in Scripture. But for now, we're going to look at these three typical examples from Jewish history, which demonstrate God's judgment on sin. And these three incidents are like three flashing lights on the dashboard of sacred history. They're commonly found together in Jewish writings of this period, and it was common for rabbis to use these three examples or combination of them and others as typical examples to teach and to warn about the judgment of God and to encourage people to obey him. The first example, Israel in the wilderness, the Exodus generation. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Wow, that's certainly a warning. Let's look at it. You will recall that whole generation of Israelites were in bondage for many years, slaves in Egypt. They were rescued as a result of the Passover blood of the lamb, and they were rescued out of Egypt. And God's intention was to take them on into their inheritance. Their inheritance was a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But very early on into the Exodus period, there was a huge turning away from God in the form of unbelief. Moses sent several spies out, 12 spies, actually one for each tribe, to to go and survey the land, and two of them came back with a positive report, Caleb and Joshua, and they said, this is amazing, it's a great land, and we're able to do it. But the 10 spies came back with a negative report, said, oh, there are giants in the land. There are things that are happening. We, will, we can't do this. This is going to be a disaster. And the negative report prevailed. Think about that for a moment. Why is it that we find it easier to believe a negative thing? And why does bad news spread more quickly than good news? And God saw this and was highly offended, and rightly so, a generation that had witnessed the miracles and the, and the transformation that God brought and the deliverance that God brought. At this point, many of them did not have the faith to move on into God's purpose and enter the promised land, which was their inheritance. And so God said, okay, you won't get there. And over the next 40 years, everybody, apart from three people, Joshua and Caleb and, and, well, even Moses. I'll come back to Moses. But they didn't enter the promised land and, and they died in the wilderness. Some of them died as a direct result of the judgment of other sins in their life, but the whole generation died. And so the writer here is saying, Jude is saying, listen, just because you have been saved, 
It doesn't mean to say you can do as you like. Just because you have been saved doesn't mean to say that you can live in such a way and express your unbelief, because if you do, you're in danger of losing your inheritance. Now here, it's not talking about people losing their salvation. I said Joshua um, and uh, um, Caleb, they got into the land, but not even Moses. Moses didn't enter the land because God judged him as well for something that he did. So this is not a test of whether you are saved or not. No, no, no. This is a warning. Do not follow in unbelief. Keep pressing forward. Keep walking in faith. Keep persevering. And I want to encourage you at home. And I really believe this is a a strong message for your heart today. During times of testing, the 40 years in the wilderness were wilderness testing. Don't draw back. We are witnessing, unfortunately, some people, as it were, move right away from Christian fellowship, uh, in some ways separate themselves, not just self-isolate for COVID reasons, but they become discouraged and start cutting themselves off from their fellow believers or start taking in stuff which is not healthy. Their, Their spiritual diet now has been mixed I wouldn't even just say with fast food. I will say with poisonous poisonous food. And others have become discouraged on the inside. I mean, not very long into the lockdown, I heard these words, I've given up on the church. That was a prominent public Christian figure. I've given up on the church. Don't ever give up on the church. The church is the body of Christ. We need one another. For all our faults and failures, we are the body of Christ. Don't give up on faith. Persevere. Keep on going. Believe God. Ask him to help you. Now is not the time to shrink back in unbelief, but to press forward in faith and receive all the promises that God has for us. Now, what is interesting here is that it says, you must remember that it was Jesus who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, hold on a minute. Jesus is the earthly name of the Son of God who came, you know, as incarnate, which we, which we know in, in the Christmas story. But that was not the beginning of his life. The Bible says the Son existed eternally with the Father. There is an eternal Father and an eternal Son. But Jude says very specifically this was Jesus because, of course, Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is as much God as God the Father is God, right? Now, what's the point? The point is this. There are some people even today who say, oh, look, that's Old Testament. The Old Testament is about the Old Covenant. The Old Testament is about judgment. The Old Testament is about an angry God. But the New Testament, it's about a, a different God, a loving God. You know, and Jesus is, is, is this happy, clappy, hippie person that would not offend anybody. Well, you don't know Jesus. His eyes are a flaming fire. He's full of glory and authority. He's the judge of all the earth. That one is the same God as the Old Testament. So this story brings Jesus into it so that we can say, hey, wait a bit. This is important for us as New Testament believers as well. Well, there's that story. It's a relevant example for Christians, not just an Old Testament example of judgment. Now, I will say again, this was not people being judged, coming under condemnation, losing their salvation. This was people who were losing their reward. If you follow 
the teaching in this church carefully, you will know what that means. And uh, more, more of that is available online. So now, the second example. The angels who sinned. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now this is uh, an extraordinary story and very often it's skipped over, but it's based on Genesis chapter 6. The story is there. In the build-up to the flood, an explanation of why that generation was not just wicked and violent, but corrupt. The whole of humanity had become corrupt. What had taken them deeper and deeper into the corruption that was already in their hearts through the sin of Adam and the fall and our own fallen human nature? Why it was an unauthorized, rebellious, angelic intervention in the physical realm. Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Still quite a long time. See how merciful God was. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who were these sons of God? Jude calls them angels, using the vocabulary, the Jewish vocabulary of his day. But in the Old Testament, these are described as the heavenly sons of God, the sons of God, Bene Elohim. We read about them many places in the Old Testament. These are the heavenly beings spiritual beings created by God to be part of his heavenly council who were assigned with authority over various aspects of God's rule, the heavens over the earth. But there was a red line they could not cross. They could not of themselves leave the heavenly dimension, the spiritual realm, and enter into the earthly physical realm to interfere directly with the affairs of men and women. Some of these angelic beings, the sons of God, rebelled. They left their proper sphere, the spiritual realm, came down to earth in the physical form, and they sinned, not just by leaving their proper sphere of authority and their proper place of dwelling, but they Having come in human form, they further sinned by interacting with the human race and in some way bore children, producing a kind of hybrid race on this earth, which is called the Nephilim, the giants or the mighty men. And this was extraordinarily serious. 
And as a result of this, earth became all the more corrupted as, as serious violence and corruption escalated on the earth. And it was this that led to the flood. Genesis 6 verses 11 and 12, following straight on from that passage that I read. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then it goes on, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You see how serious it had got? Because of this angelic intervention and because they didn't just bring offspring, but they brought spiritual wickedness and rebellion and a whole host of other things to bear upon and influence the earth. So the earth became so corrupt that God's only option was to press the reset button and wipe out that generation altogether. Tragic, but true. You need to know that some of uh, Jude's thinking and, and statements rely not just on Old Testament passages, but on Jewish writings in the intertestamental period. And uh, the very fact that Jude is writing by the inspiration of the Spirit and selects things which were true as God showed him doesn't mean to say that we accept all of these writings as being inspired by God. More on that later next week when we look a little deeper into the topic. So this is the eternal judgment that came upon the once powerful and glorious heavenly beings. They are in chains at the moment, reserved for that day of judgment. Eternal change. Think about this. Those free spirits, literally, now chained. Those glorious, resplendent, heavenly beings now condemned to doom and gloom and darkness. Terrible, but true. And it's a warning that we should never, ever mess with the spiritual realm in any way whatsoever. And neither should we in any way break the boundaries that God has given us in our lives, sexually or any other way. And finally, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, the previous examples were angels committing sexual sin with the women of the earth. And this is an example of immoral men also now desiring to commit sexual sin against the angels who had been legitimately sent by God to report to him about what was happening on the earth. Story is found in Genesis 19. And so we have here another example of God's judgment. And you know the story God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. Lot and others escaped. But God's judgment fell physically 
upon that city and those cities that are around. And, and, and Jude says, do you know what? It was not just a physical judgment of fire from heaven. This is a sign of the eternal fire, the eternal judgment that goes on and on will happen at the day of judgment. My, 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 ladies and gentlemen, what have we come into this morning? I want to say this to you. This is a warning, not to believers, to warn them that they can come under God's condemnation. Believers, for all of us who know and love Jesus, there is now no condemnation. But it does show us what we have escaped, and it does show us the kind of sins for which judgment and condemnation comes upon the unbelievers. But this is a warning also for those who don't know Jesus. God, who is a God of justice and a God of love, has conceived a plan in which his justice and his love join together and embrace one another on the cross because God sent his son into this world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The tragedy of God's judgment is not the truth of it, the tragedy of it is that we don't need to experience it. We give our hearts and lives to Jesus. And so what about those? Am I saying you can be complacent? Not at all. We need to deal with sin in our lives. And this is about wanting to become like Jesus. That's what it's all about. Ezekiel chapter 16 verses, verse 49 gives us another warning um, uh, and it, it's, it's the warning that we should not just choose certain sins, sins of sexual immorality or people going after other flesh or strange flesh and saying, you are the big time sinners. Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed simply because of sexual sin. Read Ezekiel 16 to 49. And this now maybe comes closer to home for many Christians today. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So compassion on the poor, walking in humility rather than pride, refusing to be overindulgence, putting our trust in riches, all of these things are offensive to God as much as what he describes here. So what's that about? What's that about? That's for us to say, look, nobody can walk around. I'm better than you. I'm more holy than you. All we have to do is to say, God, help me because this stuff affects me. Pride, overindulgence, lack of compassion. And you know what the amazing thing is? It is these qualities that the world is looking for in us. More than anything, what the world needs in a COVID pandemic is a glorious church. I mean, a church that's resplendent with the character and love of Jesus so that we rise up and shine like stars in the universe and to shine the light of Jesus, to shine that light into the world by our works, by our character, by our nature. Why? That we prove a point? No, because we want to be like Jesus. 
This is how I came in, in the first place. Many of you know, a little over a year ago, we released a documentary that we made in-house. It was to tell the story of KT Missions and the story of stuff that has happened over the last 20 or more years. Many don't know about it. They weren't here. And, uh, and, and in that, I, I tell my story. I tell the story of how I came to Christ. I tell the story of how I was invited as an 18-year-old teenager, not knowing a great deal about the Christian gospel, being pretty far from God, but seeking something in my life. And I heard a gospel message in which a, a great evangelical preacher, Dr. Alan Redpath, preached a message on John's gospel, chapter 5, the story of the impotent man at the pool. Now then, that means something very different in today's language. Put in today's language, a paralyzed man. And in the old version language of the King James Bible, Jesus' question to him was, Wilt thou be made whole? Now, I had enough Elizabethan language in me for my study of Shakespeare to know what that meant, but the preacher interpreted it for us and said, This meant Jesus was saying, Do you want to get better? Do you want to be whole? And then he paused and he said, you know, I only know one person who is whole, fully whole, and his name is Jesus. Therefore, the question was really this, do you want to become like me? Do you want to become like Jesus? And as I heard those words, I was amazed, never heard anything like that in my life. And something within me rose up and said, yes, I want to be like Jesus. That was the night when I was born again. And you know, that same sense, I can speak so uh, uh, eloquently of it, or at least speak so vividly about it, because I, I experienced that moment again and again and again. I want to be like Jesus. Something in me. I'm in this Christian faith business because I want to be like Jesus. And I trust that God's message in Christ is sufficient to empower me, not just to cleanse me from sin, but to empower me day by day to become like Jesus. And so I would take any warning, whether it be the bodies that fell in the wilderness of the Exodus generation, or whether it is that pre-flood catastrophe of angels interfering with women on the earth, or whether it is that, that, that huge, huge, big story of Sodom and Gomorrah with all their sins, not just sexual sins, but everything else, social sins and, and, and egotistical pride. I will, I'm wanting to learn from that and say, okay, all right, I know I'm not under condemnation. I'm under the righteousness of God. However, I see that those are the sins that offend God and any sin offends God. Help me, Jesus, to come out of that stuff that I can live a life that glorifies you and reflects that glory out into the world. Now, don't you want to be like that? That's where we're heading here. So back to this. These examples of timeless truth point forward to the judgment to come, but also are warnings that we should not participate in the kinds of things that bring God's judgment upon the believers. And that we should remember both the kindness and the severity of God. 
because God is not just love. He is also light. And in him, there is no darkness at all.